Well, good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Yeah, could you grab me a cup of water? Thanks. I'm fighting some sort of uh, sinus issue. It didn't uh, didn't sleep well last night, so if I fall asleep in the middle of this sermon, then you'll be you'll be uh, just excuse me. Someone just close in prayer, and then we'll we'll move on. So this morning, uh, as I mentioned last week, we're beginning a short series on the topic of of homosexuality that we'll go through. Um, a little bit of the month of May, and this morning we're going to just get started uh, in the series, Um, and uh, we're going to overview some of the pertinent passages uh, that pertain to the discussion this morning, and then, uh, Lord willing, this will be helpful. It'll probably be, as you see from the small group questions, there'll probably be more of a sermon about the authority of Scripture, per se, than it will be uh, about uh, about homosexuality, and I think what we notice about what we're going to talk about this morning is that some of the things we're going to say, while they're applicable to the issues of, of homosexuality that are happening in our in our culture today, they're 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 broader, more applicable than um, than just than just the measure, the, just the matter of uh, of homosexuality. So let's pray, and then we'll uh, we'll get right into our our study this morning. Father, we're grateful to have your word uh, that has not left us um, has not left us helpless to navigate the challenges that we face in this life, but it is a, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, so that we know how we ought to walk in a way that pleases you, as we walk in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation who is in need of the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to think clearly this morning about what your word says, and the necessity of, of standing firm on it. So we ask, ask for your help this morning as we, as we study your word. May everything we say be honoring and pleasing to you, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I think as we work through our study this morning, I want to zoom out a bit and introduce the series as a whole. Okay, so why address this particular topic? Well, let me offer four reasons uh, to begin, and I think the last two are maybe uh, of, of particular importance for our congregation, but in general, uh, four reasons uh, why we want to address this topic this morning. First, I think it's safe to say that issues of gender and sexuality are the most pressing issues uh, facing the church today. And by that, by that I mean that these are the matters that will divide the modern church and set it on two different trajectories, uh, either uh, bent toward liberalism or uh, bent toward faithfulness to the Scripture. It seems like every decade or so, maybe every two decades or so, the church wrestles with, the church broadly wrestles with some sort of issue that defines and sets its course for the years to come. And I think that this issue of gender and sexuality is the, is the issue that will set the church on the course for the years to come. So will the church stand or will it cave on these matters? A second reason uh, I want to address this, this topic in, in our, in our church, with our church family here is my concern that the ideology of this world, as it often does, uh, seeps down into the church. So that even if believers are not fully embracing this, 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 uh, this ideology, there are subtle shifts away from the clarity and the authority of Scripture on issues like gender and sexuality that give me cause for concern. So statements that you'll hear out there today, like it's okay to be a gay Christian as long as I don't act on it. Okay, we'll talk about this in weeks to come. But that's a subtle shift away from the clarity and authority of Scripture. Or someone might say, I believe in heterosexual marriage, but on a cultural level, I'm not opposed to same-sex marriage and, and, and allowing it to be practiced in, in the culture. Okay? Or some might say, yes, homosexuality is a sin, but this is only one of many sins listed in the scriptures, 
And so we need to talk about all these other things that, that uh, the dress search is really, it's, it's, it's no big deal and it'd be similar to like gluttony or the sin of, of divorce. And, and when these kind of arguments are, are made or these kind of statements are made, what happens is it ends up confusing believers and they're, like I said, it can cause a subtle shift away from the clarity and the authority of scriptures. And so as we go through this series, I hope to address some of those, some of those matters. On a broader scale, the shift is not so subtle. Okay, so in, in, in more conservative congregations, the shift is subtle. But on a broader scale, the shift is not so subtle. Many professing believers, uh, in an attempt to find a middle-of-the-road approach between biblical Christianity and homosexuality, uh, they are reinterpreting the clear passages of Scripture. And they're, they're saying things like this. What the Scripture forbids is not loving committed same-sex relationships, but rather what the scriptures forbid are perversions of same-sex relationships like, like man-boy relationships or gang rake or prostitution, something like that. And, and these views are gaining momentum in the broader church, in broader evangelicalism. We'll talk about some of these as we, as we go on. The third reason, now we start to get maybe a little more uh, closer to our congregation this morning, but the third reason to address this topic is because this matter is pressing in on ordinary believers in a way that they have never experienced before. So whether you are in the workplace, uh, whether you have uh, friends or family members who are um, somehow connected to this issue, few of us are living in a context where we're not having to think about how to interact with these issues of gender and sexuality. And so we need to be equipped with what the scriptures say and have a biblical response to, to, what, the, to what situations we face. And lastly, and, and perhaps most importantly, we cannot assume that the next generation buys into a biblical view of gender and sexuality. Okay, yes, they're here and they hear the preaching Sunday morning and, and Wednesday night, but we're also battling against what we might call the omnipresent influence of social media. And it's almost as if, well, you know, Sunday and Wednesday isn't enough, the presence of the word those days, because of how pressing the issues of social media are. And so we don't want to assume that the next generation is just buying into a biblical view of, of marriage and, and gender and sexuality, but we want to continue to be clear and continue to beat the drum of, of how God intended things and how he created them. Okay, so those are some of the reasons why we why we want to address those topics here this week and in the weeks to come. Now, in addressing this topic, there are some challenges in doing a series like this. But the two challenges uh, that, that come to my attention are the challenge of tone and the challenge of audience. Okay, so, so tone. Every sermon has a tone. Some sermons are encouraging, some sermons are confrontational in nature. Some sermons give a, give a warning. And every sermon has an audience, right? Sometimes they're a little more sleepy than other times, but every sermon has an audience. And, and one of the reasons why Christians disagree on how to talk about this issue is because they often have different audiences in mind. Okay, so I like the way Kevin DeYoung describes it when he says this. If we are speaking to cultural elites who despise us and our beliefs, we want to be bold and courageous. If we're speaking to strugglers who fight against, the, who fight against same-sex attraction, we want to be patient and sympathetic. If we're speaking to sufferers who have been mistreated by the church, we want to be winsome and, and humble. If we are speaking to shaky Christians who seem ready to compromise the faith for society's approval, we want to be persuasive and persistent. If we're speaking to those who are living as, scriptures, as the scriptures would not uh, have them live, we want to be straightforward and we want to be earnest. If we're speaking to belligerent Christians who hate or fear persons who identify as gay or lesbian, we want to be clear and corrective. And so you see some of the challenges there because in a, in, in a, in the, when, it, 
when it comes to the audience, you might be speaking at, at any given time to any one of those different individuals. And, and how, depending on the, the audience, it, it determines what tone uh, you'll use and how you'll approach the issue. So that's the challenge of speaking to it broadly. Okay, so this morning we may have people in our midst who agree with what we're going to, to study, and we may have those who disagree with, with what we're going to study. But we may have with us those who are not sure. They maybe have a family member, like I said, who struggles with this, or they've, they've read something online, and they're just not sure what to think about the arguments that are, that are coming at them on these issues. And so we'll do our best to, to sort of wisely navigate through these matters and, and consider this reality that it's, it's impossible to always speak to the audience in, 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 any, given, uh, in any, given, any given talk. Okay, now what do I hope to accomplish in this series? Well, three things. I'd like to clarify and call. So I hope to clarify what the scriptures teach and call us back to affirm commitment to the authority of the scriptures. Next, I'd like to equip, and I hope to equip believers to engage with the challenges that come with these issues. And then lastly, I'd like to encourage Encourage those who may be struggling with same-sex attraction or encourage those who are living a, a, a homosexual lifestyle. Encourage them that there is hope in the gospel for even those who are living in such sin. You remember what Paul's famous words, and such were some of you, he says. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see the hope offered in the gospel, in Paul's word, and we'll come to that passage in, in 1 Corinthians 6 as we, as we move through in the later discussions. Now this morning, we want to examine some of the key passages on this issue, touching on them just sort of briefly, and then making some observations, and, and then I want to come back to this issue this morning of authority, okay, the authority of Scripture and the role of Scripture in our lives, and, because that is the key issue uh, in the church today. Will the church stand or will they cave on, on the, the authority of Scripture as the cultural pressure uh, presses in? So several years ago, maybe six or seven, I was talking to an unbeliever uh, about these matters of homosexuality and at the time what was the recent legislation of, of same-sex marriage. The person to whom I was speaking was neither for nor against homosexuality, but they took this kind of approach. It's their business. What harm is there in allowing them to continue in this, in this lifestyle? As we were talking, I was making what I think or thought were good arguments for a traditional view of marriage. So I was arguing that a healthy family structure is at the core of a healthy society. And those, those cultures that have valued the traditional family structure throughout history have been the healthiest cultures. So, for example, you'll often hear talk today about the breakdown in the inner city, in the inner city family structure because of the absence of a father. Uh, but then you'll hear out of the same people that, that it's okay for two women to have a child or two men to have a child and, and sort of contradict what they've said about the presence of a father and a mother in the home. In our discussion, we went on to talk about the, the quote-unquote morality of harm, the idea that if it doesn't harm anyone, then it's not wrong. And the, we were talking, I'm saying the problem of, of, of the morality of harm is that harm is often measured in short-term effects rather than long-term effects. And sometimes it's hard to even know what the long-term effect or long-term harm of is of, of, of breaking down the traditional family structure. But as the conversation continued, it sort of boiled down to, to this question, okay? Who determines harm? Or the deeper question was something like this, who determines what is right and what is wrong? And at that point, I was reminded of this reality that I can make a lot of good cultural arguments for the, for the acceptance of a traditional family and for the, for the goodness of manhood and womanhood in society. But at some point, the conversation comes down to this reality, that there is a God 
and that he has spoken, and we have to determine what we're going to do with those realities. As I reflected on the conversation, I was reminded of something my apologetics professor said in passing many years ago when he said this, that all reasoning comes back to God. Now, you remember when you're, you've got your toddler in the car, and as toddlers like to do, they like to ask questions of, of why. Okay, why, why this, Dad? And, and you give an answer, and then they follow that up with another why question, and it, and it just continues. And he made this statement that eventually, in, in that string of questions, it all comes back to eventually because of God, right? So, so why is there day and, and why is there night? And you try to give a, a, an immediate answer. Well, because the earth turns on its axis and it rotates around the sun and, and we're not always facing the sun. And then they keep asking why and they keep asking why and eventually you come back to this question. Well, ultimately, it's because God created it that way. The same is true of any discussion involving gender, sexuality, and marriage. We can offer a lot of traditional uh, arguments for a traditional understanding of, that are good, that are logical, and that meet our audience where they're at. But eventually, the discussion comes back to God. At the end of the day, that we come back to this foundation that there is a God and that he has spoken and that those facts determine the, the whole position we take on these matters of gender and sexuality. Unfortunately, there are many individuals who are asking this question, the age-old question, did God really say? And they're asking it on, on a matter that is so crystal clear in Scripture, but because of the cultural pressure coming, they're continuing to ask this question, did God really say? So what we want to start here this morning is by, by laying the foundation for this discussion. Like, since it all reasons back to this point anyway, let's just start here with God, the fact that he has spoken in his word. Okay, now, let's, let's begin by looking at the, the relevant passages. So that was a long introduction, and uh, hopefully I'll try to work quickly through this material that we have here, okay? So there are about six passages that specifically address the topic of homosexuality in the scriptures. But then there are a handful of other passages that have implications for, for this discussion. And so in our study, we're going to uh, just highlight three of them this morning, three that I think are especially foundational for our discussion. So we begin here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, and then we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. And what I'm going to do is, is make six observations about these passages, and I'll try to work through them quickly for us as we consider them. So Genesis chapter 1, and begin in verse number 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. I didn't mean to read all of those verses, so forgive me. Now, skip down to chapter 2 and look at verse 18. Verse 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground of the out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called them the living creature that was its name the man gave names to all living to all the livestock of the birds of the heavens every beast of the field but for Adam there was not found a helper fit 
for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked, were both naked, and were not ashamed. Okay, so there's a lot that could be said about these passages, but let's uh, just highlight six observations from what we see before us. Number one, observation number one, God created man and woman equally in his image. Okay, God created man and woman equally in his image. So as you read through Genesis chapter 1, you see this description of the six days of creation and the manner by which God created. And you read through it, it says this, let there be and there was, let there be and there was. And so God created the land, the sea, the stars, the birds, animals, all by his power. But then you come to chapter 1 and verse 26, and you see that the creation of man was different. God says, let us make man in our image. Now, much has been written about what it means to be created in the image of God, uh, but we can say that there are at least two aspects of it. There is a substantive aspect, that is, in our substance or our makeup, we have the characteristics of the personality of God. We have mind and will and emotions like God. But there's also the the functional aspect, where where we are like God to have dominion over the earth, as chapter 1 and verse 26 says, that God created man to rule over the earth. And probably both of those ideas are, are connected to what it means to be created in the image of God. But then you come to verse 27 of chapter 1, and Moses switches from prose to poetry. And in so doing, he gives us a description of God's supreme act of, of creation, the, the creation of man. He says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, now notice there's overlap in each one of these lines of this poetic expression. But each one of these lines of verse 27 is intended to highlight a certain truth. Okay, so line one highlights the divine creation of man. In other words, we came from God. God created man in his own image. Line two highlights the divine image in which we've been created, that we bear the resemblance of God. And then line three highlights the dual sexuality of man. We are made male and female in the image of God. Now, this is the first observation we make about this passage. God created us. He created us as either a male or a female, But everyone was created equally in the image of God. I won't surprise you this morning, but but men are are not more important or better than women. And women are not superior or more important than men. We were created equal in the image of God. And as Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 11, there is even an interdependence that exists between man and woman. Woman came from man, and he says, ever since then, man has come from woman. There's this interdependence that exists between man and woman. So that's foundational truth number one. But now look at number two. God created men and women equally, but distinct from one another. Okay, so so while men and women share humanity, they do not share maleness and femaleness. That is to say that men and women are not identical, but rather what we see in Scripture is they are complementary, okay? They complete or they complement one another. This is, the, this is what is the point of, of, of chapter 2, verse 18. Notice the Lord says, it is not, notice the Lord does not say, it's not good that man should be alone, I'll just make another man. I'll just make someone identical to him. No, he says, I will make him a helper fit or that corresponds to him. So sharing humanity, but created differently and distinct from, 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 from man. So he created a woman who was equal but different, and one that corresponds and complements him. Okay, now foundational truth number three. 
God joined the man and woman in a marriage relationship that involved sex and reproduction. Okay? This is what we see in chapter 2, verse 24, the very first statement in Scripture on marriage. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is a description of the marriage relationship. A, a man and a woman come together in a committed relationship. Okay? And when Jesus talks about marriage, okay, this is actually an important truth. When Jesus talks about marriage, guess which verse he quotes? Verse 24. When Paul talks about marriage in Ephesians 5, guess what he comes back to? Same verse. So this is the very foundational understanding of marriage in all of, of Scripture. Now, the one flesh relationship includes the sexual union of a husband and a wife. In fact, the very next verse implies this. They were naked and they were not ashamed. Okay, so the, the included in this one flesh relationship is, is the sexual union that is to take place. It's to be enjoyed in the context, is to be enjoyed only in the context of marriage, and any other expression outside of, of the marriage relationship is a perversion of what God has created. Okay, so God creates this this male and female, puts them in a relationship, and then, and then gives them the gift of, of sex. But notice that this relationship also includes the reproduction and the fruit of, of children. Okay? The first command God gives in chapter 1 and verse 28 is be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, he says. So here we see that, that one of the ways that, that men and women complement each other is two men cannot have a baby, two women cannot have a baby, but God brings a male and a female together in order that they might fill the earth. Now, just as a side note, it would be a mistake to say that the only reason sex was created was for reproduction. But it would also be a mistake to say that couples can ignore the imperative given here in chapter 1 to have children. That is to say, if the Lord allows and everything works as it should, then husbands and wives should see it as their responsibility, their obligation to continue to reproduce and fill the earth. It was part of the creation mandate. Now, number four, God's creation of gender, sexuality, marriage, and family is good. Okay, it is good. Notice verse, or chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, he says, it was very good. Now, leading up to this, he creates all these things that he says it was good, but then after he finishes creating gender, marriage, sex, family, children, he says this, that it was very good. In the eyes of the creator, this is a good thing that he has created. And so we should treasure and prize these things that he has created as well. Now consider another observation, number five. This account of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 reveals God's intent in his creation or for his creation. In other words, as you read through chapter 1 and 2, the scriptures give incredible detail in the creation of God, do they not? And we should assume that this detail is intentional. In other words, the way God created it, especially male and female and, and the marriage relationship, that the way God created it was how he intended it to be. Okay? He intended things to be a certain way and he created them that way. Now, now I like what Kevin DeYoung says in his book. He says this, a different design for creation would demand an entirely different creation story. Okay? You'd have to, to change the entire story in order to get some other intent out of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Now, sixthly, the last observation we make of Genesis 1 and 2 is this. The rest of Scripture's understanding of gender, sexuality, marriage, and family is built on the foundation of the creation account. Okay? So the rest of the Scripture, as they think about these matters, they build on what we have in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Okay, we're going to unpack this here in just a minute, but um, have you ever played the game Jenga? All right, if not, you're missing out. It's a great game, okay? Um, but it's that game where they, you stack a tower of blocks and you try to, to pull out blocks and see how many you can pull out before the thing comes crumbling down. We might say 
that Genesis 1 and 2 are the bottom row of a game of Jenga. Okay? If you pull that out, the entire structure crumbles. If you pull out Genesis 1 and 2 from the scriptures, then the understanding of gender, sexuality, family, marriage, all these things, the rest of the scriptures, they crumble because they're all built on the foundation of Genesis 1 and 2. Now, I'm going to show you that in our next two passages. So let's turn our attention now to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. read it in just a second, but let me say this. Now, one of the arguments employed by professing believers who want to revise the traditional understanding of marriage to allow for loving, committed, same-sex relationships, one of the arguments they employ is to say that Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Therefore, he must not have thought it was wrong, or at the very least, he didn't think it was that big of a deal. But there are two mistakes at this point. One is to assume that the red letters carry more weight than the black letters in your Bible. Okay? But friends, they're all God's words, and regardless of which color the printer used to print them, every word in the Bible is the word of God. And we should never pit Jesus against the other authors of Scripture who wrote what they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So that would be one mistake. The second mistake is to assume that Jesus said nothing pertaining to homosexuality. Okay, it's true that he didn't mention the sin of homosexuality specifically, but that doesn't mean that he never addressed it by implication. Okay, so in this passage, in the first part of the passage, Jesus is being asked about divorce. And the question is posed in verse 3. Is it lawful, they ask, to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, Jesus goes on to ultimately answer this question about divorce in the the following verses. But his ultimate answer is not our concern this morning. Rather, our focus is on the immediate answer that Jesus gives in verses 4 to 6. Notice what he says. So they ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Okay? Now let's make two observations about this passage. Notice that Jesus' understanding of gender, sexuality, marriage, is rooted in the creation account. So in order to clarify the issue of divorce, Jesus takes his audience where? Right back to Genesis. And he says this, have you not read? In other words, you should be aware of the foundation that's been penned in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And so what we see then is that, that Jesus' understanding of gender and sexuality, it has not progressed in the thousands of years since the Old Testament was written. Jesus is not woke. He hasn't become alert to new views of sexuality. Rather, he's got the same understanding of gender and sexuality as was originally given in the creation account. Now, secondly, notice this, observation number two. As one present at creation, Jesus can and does describe the original intent of gender, sexuality, and marriage. Let me say it again. As one present at creation, Jesus can and does describe the original intent of gender, sexuality, and marriage. Now, in our country, there is an ongoing debate about what the original authors intended when they wrote the Constitution. And there are different schools of thought when it comes to how to interpret the Constitution. Some better than others, some more frustrating than others. And I've often thought at times it would be nice if we could go back to, to one of the original framers of the Constitution and ask this question, all right, what did you mean when you wrote this particular statement? 
Okay, that would probably bring some clarity to some of the discussions we have today. But obviously we can't. We can't. They've, uh, they've all ceased to, uh, to exist here on this earth. Now, in this discussion of gender, marriage, and sexuality, wouldn't it be nice if similarly we could go back to the Creator and ask how it was intended at the original creation? Well, that's exactly what's happening here in Matthew chapter 19. Okay, Jesus, who was present at creation, right? John 1, 3, all things were made by him, and there wasn't anything that was made that, that, wasn't, that, that wasn't made by him. Colossians 1, 16 talks about the same thing, Jesus creating everything. And so as one present at creation, Jesus is able to say, well, let's go back, and I'll tell you what the original intent of creation was. Okay, if you want to talk about divorce, then you have to go back to the beginning and talk about the intention of what God created in marriage in the first place, Jesus says. And here's what he says. He created the male and female. They leave their father and mother, and they hold fast to one another. They become one flesh. They're no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, what we have is Jesus explaining the, 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 the very intentionality of creation. That it wasn't as if he created things this way, but there were other options to express sexuality. No, there is an intentional design in the way God created things, and we have the evidence of Jesus' words to prove that. Now, I don't know how things can get any clearer for us than they are here in Jesus' words of Matthew 19. It's true Jesus doesn't talk about homosexuality, but truthfully, in this culture, no Jews were accepting homosexuality. He didn't need to condemn homosexuality as a sin. All he really needed to do was make a positive statement about the intentionality with which God created gender and marriage. Now, one more passage. Romans chapter 1. Lord willing, we'll come to this passage next week and do a fuller exposition of it. But Romans chapter 1 passage starts in 18 and what we see in Romans 1 is that this is one of the most detailed words on the topic of homosexuality in all of scripture and what we find is it's a clear condemnation of of the sin and as I said time won't allow us to unpack it this morning but but let's make let's make three observations of this passage in Romans 1 Observation number one, this passage addresses the creation account, okay? So a quick reading of verses 18 to 32 would show that Paul relies strongly on the creation account for his understanding of gender and sexuality, okay? So he begins his discussion with a reference to creation in verse 20. Notice it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So he's talking about how God created this world. In verse 25, he goes on to say that the sin of mankind is that they worship the creature rather than whom? The creator. So Paul clearly has creation in mind as he's unpacking these truths of Romans 1. Now this leads us to our second observation. So when Paul uses the words natural and nature, he still has the creation account in mind. So if you look at verses 26 and 27, Paul begins to unpack in vivid detail the dishonorable passions, he calls them, of of mankind. So verse 26, he says this, Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Okay, so you've got that word natural, and you've got that word nature appearing in verse 26. In other words, it was natural, they were created in nature to, to enjoy a sexual relationship with a man, and they exchanged that to do something that was unnatural, or against nature, or not part of the created order to have women with women. Verse 27 says the same thing when it says, and the men likewise gave up natural or created relations with women, and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. 
So the natural sexual relationship was created by God to be a man and a woman, but these men and these women gave up the, the, what was natural for something that was unnatural. Okay, so Paul, when he uses these words natural and nature, he is thinking back to the creation account. In other words, Paul thinks Genesis is intentional in the way that it references creation. Now, third observation. There is no reason to think that Paul is speaking about anything other than homosexuality in Romans chapter 1. Okay, like I said, some have tried to argue that what's, what God forbids is inappropriate expressions of, of same-sex relationships, like prostitution or pedophilia. But the scriptures allow for a loving, committed sexual or same-sex relationship. But that's to ignore what Paul says in this passage. Okay? The issue is that they exchanged or they gave up what was natural in creation. And notice what verse 27 says. That they were consumed with passion for one another. So this is a mutual relationship that's taking place here. A mutually interested relationship man with man or woman with woman against the way God created this world. So our conclusion should be this. The Bible calls homosexuality a sin that must be repented of and must be forgiven if one is going to avoid the wrath of God revealed in verse 18. Now there are other passages that are pertinent for the discussion. We don't have time to cover them this morning. Genesis chapter 19 is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You're familiar with that story? Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, they both uh, refer to the laws in the Old Testament of, of forbidding a, a man to lay with a man as he would a woman, is what the expression says. And it's called an abomination, and it receives the death penalty in Leviticus chapter 20. There's also 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which is Paul's famous passage, and such were some of you, uh, but now you have been sanctified. And then 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, is another reference in one of Paul's vice lists of, of the sin of, of homosexuality. Now, what should we conclude about, about some of these things? Okay, Those who attempt to create a middle ground between Christianity and homosexuality, they've made every attempt to explain the scriptures away. But here's what we should conclude. Genesis 1 sets forth without question and without ambiguity what God intended in creation. In addition to this, Jesus, as one who was present at creation, states the intent of the created order. And Paul, when he wants to teach us about gender, sexuality, consistently comes back to the Genesis account. So I think we can say without hesitation that what the scriptures say about homosexuality is clear and it is consistent as you walk through all of scripture. Now even if you were able to explain away Genesis and Jesus and Paul, which I don't think is possible, you would be left with this conclusion that the scriptures say nothing positive about homosexuality. At best, it would be an argument from silence. But even that argument is highly suspect. Now, what are the implications for our life today as we sit here and study these things? Let me give us two practical implications. Okay. We need to remember that the Bible is our ultimate authority. Okay, the Bible is our ultimate authority. My concern in this issue is that the authority of the Bible is being challenged. Because when people are asking, did God really say, and what God said is clear, then it is undermining the authority of, of Scripture. I think it's safe to say this, that the, the issue of homosexuality is not one of clarity, but one of authority. The question is not, are the scriptures clear? The question is, will we bring ourselves under the clear teaching of scripture? And unfortunately, every time the culture turns up its pressure against Christians, Christians start questioning the truthfulness and the authority of the scriptures. Now, let me be clear. I'm not so concerned 
that this congregation is being tempted to surrender the authority of the Bible and cave on this issue. But probably for us, where we're more susceptible to surrender the authority of Scripture is in the way that we converse about this with unbelievers. So we could be tempted at times to set the authority of the Bible aside in favor of more culturally acceptable arguments, kind of like what I was doing in my conversation with with my friend. In other words, like traditional marriage is good for society, has lots of good implications, and and you should should understand these, and and we should agree that the traditional view of marriage is good. Okay? And you might say, well, my friend or my neighbor doesn't recognize the authority of the Bible, so why would I bring that up in, in a conversation? Well, as we already noted, it's going to come back to the truth about God anyway, that he's, he exists and that he's spoken. So you might as well just bring it up in, 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 in intellectual honesty. Okay? But, but secondly, and ultimately, just because your friend doesn't acknowledge the authority of the Bible doesn't make it any less authoritative. Okay? You wouldn't lay down your sword in a sword fight just because your enemy didn't recognize it as a sword. Okay? That, that's insignificant. So you wouldn't lay down the Bible just because one doesn't recognize its authority. Plus, the truth of God's word is the one thing that God promises to bless. God promises to bless as we expound on and make clear the word. He promises to use that to penetrate hearts. So we we don't want to shift away from this authority or or sort of try to backdoor the Bible. And rather, we, we stand on it. We make it clear, and we let God be God. It's his word. He can do with it as he wishes. So this is our ultimate authority we must stand on. Now, secondly, and lastly, the Bible is our ultimate authority, but it's the Bible rightly interpreted that is our ultimate authority. Let me say it again. The Bible is our ultimate authority, but it it must be the Bible rightly interpreted as our ultimate authority. The contemporary position of trying to argue that the Bible approves homosexuality is not a new trick. If you were to go back to the 1920s, to the fundamentalist, modernist controversy, the theological liberals were denying essential and clear truths in the scripture. And the the theologically conservative individuals were trying to get these these modernists to hold to the statement of faith. One was the the Westminster Confession at the time. And they're trying to get them to hold to the the teachings of, of of the confession. And they had this pious response. They would say this, we have no creed but the Bible. Now that sounds good until you realize what they were saying is they didn't want to have their beliefs held to a standard, but rather they wanted the freedom to hold the Bible but to interpret it in in any way that they wanted. And that's what we find today. There are many who want to hold the Bible but, but reinterpret its clear teaching on gender and sexuality. but you can't have it both ways. Our authority must rest on the Bible, but on the Bible rightly interpreted. Now, let me share my heart on this. One of my concerns in in terms of of rightly interpreting the Bible is that naive believers are often lured into wrong ideas because of a perceived compassion on the part of the liberals or revisionists, and an ugliness on the part of conservatives. Okay, So people are deceived because they look at how the left talks about gender and sexuality, and they they come across and appear as, as more compassionate. And then you look at how some conservatives and even Bible believing Christians talk about matters of gender and gender and sexuality, and it is it is ugly, okay, the, way they, the way they talk about it. And so what happens then is the, the person who's naive sees this perceived compassion and they're more drawn to that and they're pushed away by the ugliness with which some engage. But here's the problem. They haven't actually dealt with the text of Scripture. Rather, their experience becomes the lens through which they interpret these issues. Like, I don't want to be that, 
this is more appealing, so now I twist the Bible to make it say something closer to this. But our authority is not our experiences or our feelings or how one group responds or how another group responds. Our authority is the Bible rightly interpreted. So we come to the text and we do the hard work of, of, of understanding the text and we let the chips fall where they may because that is our ultimate authority. And my concern is that it's with a lot of these issues, not just, not just gender and sexuality, but with a lot of these issues, that experience and feeling becomes the new hermeneutic, becomes the means by which we interpret the scriptures. And so we're, we're repulsed by, by ugliness, and so we, we, we just let that experience shift us into unbiblical thinking. But we've got to do the hard work of coming back to the text and letting that be the authority. We interpret everything we see through the lens of Scripture, not vice versa. And I'm not saying that there are not ugly people on this issue. Right? There are some harsh and, and disgusting things said by professing believers on this issue. And we should reject the, the spirit with which they speak but our, our responsibility is to speak the truth in love. That involves speaking both the truth and speaking in a matter that is clear and loving. Well, we've waxed the elephant long enough on this issue this morning, so let's, uh, let's finish with just reminding ourselves that it is the Bible rightly interpreted that is our authority. And it's on this we stand, and if we don't stand on this, we don't stand on anything, because this is the solid ground on which we stand. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for the clarity of your word and the chance we have to unpack it. Help us be convinced of what you say and have the courage to stand for it as we try to minister grace and truth in this dark world. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with uh, our final song, May the Mind of Christ, my Savior.